happens every Sunday here, 3.30 in the sanctuary uh, for the summer. Uh, we'll return to Sunday school come September. Uh, Wednesday morning prayer has moved to 7 a.m. for the summer, and we ask that you would be able to join us for one of those times as we lift up all that we do to the Lord. Uh, Sue has also opened her house uh, for prayer at f- uh, Friday evenings at 7 p.m. That's 1649 Fair Avenue. Uh, we have during the service childcare for those who are looking for someone to take care of their kids during the sermon, uh, ages zero to four, and there'll be a dismissal uh, in the middle of the service after the pastoral prayer. Uh, if you haven't made use of the children's, uh, sorry, the childcare during the service, there is actually a registration form that you'll need to fill out, and uh, you need to sign in your children in and out. Just a reminder for those who maybe uh, haven't done that or are new and are looking to make use of that. Uh, the ladies' book stu- study sorry, is continuing this Wednesday, uh, 7 p.m. at Rebecca's house. I don't know what the chapter is, but hopefully you do. Uh, the men's breakfast will also be continuing this Sunday, uh, 8 a.m. at the Afkis house. Uh, this Saturday, that's July 29th, I believe. Uh, Westmount is actually looking for some, uh, some strong, uh, sturdy, helpful men. Uh, to come assist with some painting this week. Uh, The actual time has not been set down. I think they're going to be doing some work throughout the whole week. Um, However, if you are able at any time this week to help out and assist with that, um, it's just kind of on this main patio porch out here that they've just done. Um, If you're able to help, come get in touch with myself or Megan. Um, We'll pass that along to uh, Dave, who is the, the... sort of the maintenance guy here at Westmount, and, uh, and we'll let them know if you're able to help. Uh, again, there isn't actually a specific time. They're kind of just looking for anyone who could drop in at any moment. Uh, if there is sort of a, everyone's gathering, getting together and working on it, we'll send out an email through the members memo, uh, which this is a great reminder. If you don't get the members memo or don't get the weekly memo from uh, Megan, uh, get her your email. Come talk to me or one of the other elders. Uh, we'll put you in touch with someone who can get you connected. Um, but anyways, uh, we're looking for help for Westmount sometime this week, before Saturday. Uh, last announcement before we turn to our call to worship this evening. Uh, just a reminder that the communion trays, the outer two rings of every tray will be wine and everything else will be grape juice. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you now to open to Psalm 98 for our call to worship this evening. As we turn our hearts to the Lord, Psalm 98. Uh, if you don't have a Bible... Um, You can listen as I read. Psalm 98, beginning in verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation, and he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, and break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With the trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this evening we come to exalt and to worship the Lord and to praise him 
to sing of his great work which has been accomplished for us, his righteousness and salvation and his steadfast love that has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, who has come and bled for us, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might be raised up to new life with him. We come to worship in the great work of Christ. We come to give you the praise that you are due, and we come, Lord, to hear of your great might and strength once again through the preaching of the word, to be instructed, to be built up in our faith, strengthened, Lord, for the the task of obedience and faithfulness this week. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will now be at work in our midst. Help us. Help us, Lord, whether we come prepared to worship already, excited, or whether we become tired, Lord, weak, in need. We ask that your spirit will give uh, to each one that we might worship with great affection for the Lord, that we might be shown the truth and rejoice in it, Lord, that we might look with the eyes of faith to our God who is faithful and just. Let us look to his righteousness and find hope. We pray this evening, Lord, that you will be exalted, that your name will be lifted high. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, we have had the joy of observing a multitude of uh, children dedications in the last several weeks. We're we're going to continue the trend. Judging by the pregnant uh, mothers out there too, we're going to be doing this for some time, uh, which we thank the Lord for. And um, I, I say this often, but when we planted the church, we had one child, uh, Finn, who just turned 12 this week. And we used to pray for him. We, I mean, he got a lot of attention. That was a good thing. So we used to, when we would dismiss the children for uh, Sunday school, uh, we basically, he was the only child. So every week he would come to the front and he would get a personal blessing every single week, which I like to think is part of the reason why he's on the straight and narrow now. You know, he, got a, he had a lot of prayers directed his way. Uh, but we are very thankful for all the children that the Lord has blessed us with. And um, we do take our responsibilities as parents very serious. The Lord has laid upon us a weighty but happy burden. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. When we dedicate our children, we are acknowledging that they, as all creatures, do belong to the Lord as his creatures. That they bear a responsibility as creatures to offer him thanksgiving and to glorify him with their lives. This is true regardless of whether or not they personally believe that at the moment. And so we are confessing that Christ is Lord and that all creatures owe him their allegiance. We are also acknowledging as parents that we bear a unique responsibility, a covenantal responsibility to our children to raise them in the Lord, which in the least is to raise them uh, in a home that confesses and lives in accordance with the reality that Christ is Lord because he is according to the word and on the authority of the scriptures and We are also, as a congregation, acknowledging that there is a responsibility that we have as brothers and sisters to come alongside families, 
to encourage fathers, to encourage mothers, to encourage husbands and wives, to encourage children. This letter, uh, which would have been read, this, this, this letter to the Ephesians would have been read in the congregation. So the congregation is instructed, um, the family is instructed in the context of the congregation. And so we as a congregation are acknowledging that we have a responsibility to pray for, to encourage, to support, to disciple and discipline families as well. So with that, I'm going to invite Zach and Gabby and Samson Warner to dedicate Samson. And we are happy to see Samson feeling a little better this evening. He's had a rough go. I remember my wife saying she thinks it was about four years until we were free of sickness in our home. The baby years can be a rough time. The purpose of this dedication ceremony is to help you as parents to publicly acknowledge the sacred duty to raise your ch children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in keeping with that purpose, I'm going to ask you to respond together to a series of questions with your commitments. Do you now present Samson before God in solemn dedication, recognizing his rightful claim over his life and yours? We do. And do you devote yourselves as parents to bring up Samson in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? We do. Do you promise by God's grace to joyfully acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ by word and example in the prayerful hope that your children will openly confess Jesus Christ as Lord and become members of his body? We do. Do you promise to instruct your children in the word of God and the practice of prayer, the humility of repentance and the obedience of faith, and to guide him in the development of Christ-like character? We do. Inasmuch as you have promised before God and his people to raise Samson in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we charge you to exercise your duty in faith and with the strength that God supplies. And do you, the body of Christ, promise to receive Samson in love, to pray for him, to help instruct him in the faith and encourage him in the fellowship of believers? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bless Samson, that you would keep him, that you would cause your face to shine upon him and be gracious to him, that you would lift up your countenance upon him and give him peace. We pray through Jesus Christ and amen.
been reading through the account of uh, 1 Samuel 15 this week, specifically through the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, and of Samuel. Saul was given his first task, a test of his allegiance and obedience. He was to make an utter end of the Amalekites. And I can picture it in my mind, the day of that great defeat, an old enemy. The battle scene is that of carnage and destruction. The smell of smoke fills the nostrils as the city burns behind them. The sound of laughter and camaraderie comes forth from the mouths of strong men, victorious and gleeful in their victory. The evidences, the evidences of success, or so it seems. I can picture King Saul, tall and battle-worn, sword still in hand, covered in blood and debris from the hard-won battle, coming forth from the wreckage to meet Samuel from the midst of his army. I can also hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen. Blessed be the Lord, Saul cries out to Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul, hast thou performed the commandment of the Lord? What is that monument I see in the distance, the one that you set up for yourself? What also is this then, this cacophony of noise that I hear, this blatant testimony against you? But Samuel, I have obeyed. I have even done above and beyond what was asked. Look, here is Agag the king. Look at the plunder. Look at the victory, Samuel. Saul, hast thou performed the commandment of the Lord? You mean all the livestock? Oh, the, the people spared them to sacrifice to the Lord our God. The people, 
took the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best things to sacrifice to Lord your God. Saul, hast thou performed the commandment of the Lord? Saul speaks, I feared the people you gave me. They made me to sin, and so I have done it. Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen the fat of rams. As one man has put it so well, speaking of Saul and his actions, he had done all which he thought he needed to do. So much wiser was he in his own eyes than God himself. Carnal, deceitful hearts think to excuse themselves from God's commandments with their own equivalents. And tragically, we see the same lie over and over again through the story of God's people. Did God really say, obedience can be redefined, can't it? After all, I'm not to blame for the carnage. It was not me who sinned. It was the woman you gave me. It was the people you gave me. It was this life you have given me. We read in Isaiah chapter 1 a warning. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The question is simple this, this evening. What have we brought into God's house this evening? Is the bleating and lowing of your sins calling out before you? Is your self-seeking plunder stashed in your pockets? Are you covered in the garments of your own righteousness? And I'm going to end here at verse 18, and it is a glorious climax to this. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us confess before the Lord. Lord God of heaven and earth, you who called forth life from the void, who created everything from nothing. Lord, left to our own devices, the extent of our righteousness is as fig leaves. Our food is the bread of anxious toil. Our thirst seeks to be quenched from cisterns that hold no water. Forgive us, O Lord. You, O Lord, made us for yourself, a people purchased and ransomed and clothed in the righteousness and garments of Christ. You are the bread of life, the bread that was broken. Your cup is foaming with rich wine, the blood that was spilt. You have tailored and fitted us with pure garments that cannot be eaten by moths or stolen by thieves. You have blessed us, O Lord, with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So, Lord, we confess our sins. 
Forgive us for our, for our idolatry, our justifying and blaming, our excusing and our apathy, our casually strolling in the midst of battle, holding weapons of counterfeit obedience. Give us clarity, O Lord, to see the cross, the empty tomb, the risen Savior. Amen. We'll now pass the offering. Um, so also here, encourage us to examine our hearts and our intentions. It says in Hebrews, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And also it says in Ecclesiastes, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So let's commit this to the Lord as well. Lord, search us and know us. Guard us from the sin of self-preservation. May we be known before you as a people who gives freely, sacrificially, and obediently. Lord, bless the work of our hands, O God, and all glory be to your great name. Amen.
Psalm 55, we read, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit. And we thank you that we can come and freely cast the many burdens that we have on you, the things which are completely unbearable in our own strength and with our own wisdom. Lord, these things which are too weighty for us are as nothing to you. We thank you that though we feel powerless that we have the promise that by your spirit that you will strengthen us, that you will sustain us. We know that you presently are upholding the universe by the word of your power, that you are giving life and breath to all creatures, that you have not merely created the world in order to set it on a course blindly, separate from you, but that you are actively sustaining all that you have made such that all creatures owe you their gratitude for every moment of their existence. And we thank you for the promise that you will never let your people be moved, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will finish the work that you have begun in us that the work that you have begun will brought to completion at the return of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that one day this whole world will be remade. We thank you that the arc of history is not random. That as much chaos as we observe, not only around us, but within us, Lord, we know that there is one who holds the world in his hands. There is one who has directed the course of human events to the cross. And we confess that now you even still direct the course of human events to the return of your son, to the fullness of his kingdom, to his eternal reign of righteousness, to a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, we confess that ultimately your plans cannot be stayed. And so, Lord, we give you thanks that as much as everything around us moves, as shaky as things feel beneath our feet, that you are a firm foundation beneath us. You are a rock that cannot be moved. 
And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire to see the nations bow before you. We desire to see those who are far from you be brought near to you, those who are living in darkness to see the great light that has dawned in your Son, those who are under the sentence of death to receive mercy. We thank you that you have given us this day and our daily bread, that you have sustained our lives, and we pray that you would continue to do so. Give us labor that we could work hard to glorify you in whatever task you have given us, God. We pray that you would forgive us our sins and help us to forgive those who sinned against us. We ask that you would lead us not to temptation but that you would deliver us from evil. Help us to put on the full armor of God. We know that we wage a war that is, has been raging for millennia now. Since the fall of our first parents. And we thank you, Lord, that ultimately you will win this war. But we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our day. That you would help us to find strength in the grace that you supply we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 
Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Proverbs. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read verses 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us even as we listen now to do so with a posture of humility, with a recognition of our own need for instruction, for wisdom, for knowledge, ultimately for your son. So God, do this work among us. Produce in us a posture that is willing and eager to receive your word for as precious as it truly is. We pray this in Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Be not wise in your own eyes. As many of you know, my um, dad's second career, he went back to teacher's college, I think in his 40s, um, was as a teacher. And um, in many ways, he said to my mom that this felt like the kind of the career that he had always wanted to pursue. He found a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment in this career, particularly in his time at Brookside, which is a youth jail. So he, he, um, a lot of people, I think, would view that job as a bummer job, as a job where you hope to get out of there into a, you know, a more prestigious institution <laughs> than, uh, you know, where they send all the, the really bad apples. Uh, but he loved it. Uh, he was actually sad to leave it. And his uh, area of expertise was in spec ed. So, you know, you can imagine that the beauties that are in a youth jail already probably are not doing too great in school. And then you take, you know, the most beautiful beauties of those guys and, and the ones that are really struggling there, and th- those were the ones that my, my dad focused on. And he had a lot of compassion on them, and he absolutely loved celebrating the incremental steps. I mean, if someone could, you know, be 14, 15 and, and have the capacity uh, regarding reading of like a kindergarten kind of thing. This wasn't uncommon. And he had a lot of compassion and mercy on them. Um, but he came across a lot of you know, what we might label as learning disabilities today. Now, a lot of, to be honest, what people label as learning disabilities is based on a secular view of humanity, an ignorant view of education. Um, Our culture presently loves to make excuses, loves to come up with reasons why we aren't responsible for the things that we're responsible for. And this is true when you think of learning disabilities too. Nevertheless, there are genuine learning disabilities. That is, there are people who have a limited capacity in certain things. 
Uh, that could be, there could be, you know, environmental factors in that. You come from a really devastating home environment, right? And, and you experience a lot of emotional upheaval. Uh, that's going to have severe consequences on your capacity to learn, to work, these types of things. Um, so he was very familiar with people who had pretty enormous obstacles uh, to their education, personally, intellectually, and otherwise. And yet, I remember my dad always saying, and he said this repeatedly, that the greatest learning disability in the world is thinking you know everything. And keep in mind, that's coming from someone who's dealing with people who we would consider as probably having the world's greatest learning disabilities. Um, and yet he was aware that the entire time, have, knowing all that full well, being literally an expert in this field, saying, nope, dyslexia, no. You know, ADD, no. ADHD, not even that. Uh, for sure, the world's greatest learning disability is the human arrogance of thinking that you know everything. And I actually don't think this is in any way hyperbolic. I think this is technically true. I think that this is precisely true. And the reason is that when you develop a view of yourself that is beyond the need for learning, you immediately set up impenetrable barriers around your mind. That it does not matter if you possess in yourself the inherent capacity to learn. Whatever capacity you think you have, as soon as you say, I don't need to learn, you stop learning. You can't learn. Almost all of these diagnosed obstacles to learning can be overcome through a variety of strategies. Um, you know, and it could be a complex thing. You know, you're dealing with the home situation or you're, you're, there's, there's many things. We're, we're complex creatures and it's pretty amazing actually what we've learned about people and how to help people from all different places. But there is absolutely nothing but the grace of God that can overcome conceit. There is no, no strategy. There is absolutely no strategy that can overcome the human proclivity towards conceit. And it is not only destructive for us, it is this barrier that is impenetrable that prevents the truth from coming in. And it results in terrible um, uh, human depravity and suffering. And the antidote to all of this is the gospel. That's, that's the only antidote. I don't know about you, but I feel, I feel as, this, as though being wise in your own eyes, this, is, this has always characterized humanity, but I think it uniquely characterizes our present moment. You know, I, f I forget the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of never have people who are so um, basically, who are less qualified had such a higher view of themselves. It's like... The, the people, the boasts, if you look at our culture, the people who boast about who they are and what, what they know are the, the least capable people we've ever had lead us. And the reason for that is that we are wise in our own eyes. We have an inflated view of ourselves. And this is why the truth is so hated in our midst. 
I want to talk to you about the danger of conceit, the antidote to conceit, and the fruit of humility. First, the danger of conceit. The father warns his son about being wise in his own eyes. This phrase means essentially to be wise in your own opinion. That is, to have a view of yourself that considers yourself wise. We might use the phrase, uh, don't be a know-it-all. That's what we're talking about here. Somebody who thinks that they know everything, and importantly, they don't therefore need anyone's help or instruction. This is the kind of person that the father is warning his son about becoming. The problem here is not in the possession of wisdom. We, we need to not miss this. Uh, the father doesn't say, be not wise. That would contradict everything he's taught his son up to this point. The purpose of the book of Proverbs is so that his son can gain wisdom. It says in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the, the father exhorts his son to pursue, to seek wisdom. In chapter 2, the father tells his son in the same chapter that it is God who gives wisdom abundantly. So the problem is not that the son would possess wisdom. That's actually the goal. But the problem and the greatest barrier to that happening is that his son would think that he is wise. This is wisdom. Get wisdom. The wise are those who think that they aren't wise. And the people that, they, that think they are wise are fools. This is the paradox of wisdom, which we are going to run into again and again and again in the book of Proverbs. The problem is viewing oneself as wise. The paradox of wisdom is that it is something that can only be found so long as you search for it. As soon as you abandon the pursuit, you abandon wisdom. Wisdom is the kind of thing that you never arrive at. Wisdom, if you feel that you have, have arrived at wisdom, you have actually forsaken wisdom. And that is because the very nature of wisdom is it requires a constant, humble self-awareness of our own poverty our moral poverty, our intellectual poverty, our physical poverty. Wisdom requires us to acknowledge our own need constantly. Why would you look for something that you think that you have? You only look for things that you don't possess. Notice how being wise or being right in one's eyes in the Bible is contrasted with listening to the counsel of others. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Same language. In contrast, the fool with this. But a wise man listens to advice. We can conclude from this that one of the primary characteristics and dangers of being wise in your own eyes is the refusal to listen to external instruction. 
So we might say, well, what does it mean that I'm wise in my own eyes? And how do I know if I'm wise in my own eyes? The litmus test is very simple. Are you someone who seeks out and rejoices in and has a sense of need for other people's instruction, the word of God and the exhortation of brothers and sisters? This is the litmus test for knowing whether we are wise in our own eyes. Do we, do we seek out wisdom? Do we pursue it? Or do we feel comfortable? Do we feel safe with our own ideas, with our own understanding, with our own ethics, with our own morality? The danger, one of the dangers of this kind of inflated view of ourselves and this conceit is that ultimately there is little hope of eternal good. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In the book of Proverbs, there's not much hope for a fool. And whatever sliver of hope there is for a fool, there is less hope for someone who's wise in his own eyes. This is, we need to think about this because these are devastatingly weighty warnings. We need to let this rest on us. We need to humbly consider if we and how we are wise in our own eyes because the warning of Scripture is at the end of that road is ruin. And there's little hope of return. Because how, why would you leave a bad path if you think it's a good path? Right? That's why there's no hope. There's no hope for someone who's wise in his own eyes because that person thinks he's going the right way, right? It's like following your GPS and it's leading you astray, but you have no idea because you don't know the right way. Right turn, left turn, keep going. This is all I know. There's little hope of you adjusting course because you don't know the right way. We live in a time where conceit is celebrated as a form of liberation. But conceit is not a form of liberation. It is not the path to freedom. It is a sad and shallow and a pathetic prison that we build ourselves and then lock the door and throw away the key. That's what it means to be wise in your eyes and have no hope. To have an inflated view of yourself is as if you wall yourself in and then you throw away the key and then you boast in your freedom. Have we barricaded ourselves in the perceived shelter of our own wisdom, of our own understanding? Our wisdom and our understanding is not a protection, it is a prison. It is an impenetrable prison apart from God's regenerating grace. The first step in salvation, the first step to truth is humbling ourselves to see our need, to see that our wisdom and our understanding are limited. In fact, our wisdom and our understanding, apart from God's renewal, according to his word, are not wisdom at all. Uh, apart from human wisdom would not have led us to the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians in fact, human wisdom considers the cross folly. That's the scary thing about human wisdom, right? 
is not only are you shutting yourself off from the truth, you think you believe the truth. And you think that when you see the truth, that it's not the truth. That's what Paul says about the wisdom of the cross is folly. A second reason for the warning against being wise in one's own eyes is not only that it shuts us off from the truth, that it prevents us from learning, from gaining an understanding. It keeps us on the path to ruin without us even knowing it. The second reason for the warning against being wise in one's own eyes in the Bible is that such a posture is the root of all kinds of evil and wickedness and injustice. In other words, the thing that we call good, the thing that we call freedom, the thing that we set up as an ethical standard, namely that we can do and be what we want, is actually the poison that has corrupted humanity. And if that's not, if that's not just evidence of our own folly, I don't know what else is. That the thing that is killing us, we call medicine. In those days, there was no king in Israel. We read in Judges 17, 6. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what was right? Rape. Murder. Mobs. Not everyone did what was wrong in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right. You only need a small view of human history to understand that the most heinous acts that humans have committed have been done so under the pretense that they were good things. Those are the worst things. Are we so naive in our understanding of human nature and true righteousness and wickedness that we think that the bad guys say that they're bad? That's crazy. There will come a time when people will kill you and think that they are doing so in the service of God, Jesus said. The most potent wickedness is a wickedness that can be committed as righteousness. Which is why today all of the crazy in our world is really, it, it's committed under, under the guise of being righteous. It's language games. We live in a time where good is considered evil and evil is considered good, where doing what you think is right is not only permissible, but desirable, where the right to self-governance morally is a basic human right, well, for some of us. But do we really have the right to determine what is right? Do we really have the right to do whatever we want? This is why Paul gives a similar warning to Christians in Romans 12, 16. Never be wise in your own sight. It's not just because you will be intellectually stunted, although you will. Uh, you will be absolutely intellectually stunted. I know people who are extraordinarily intelligent and very stupid. Uh, you know, some of the worst things that have been, have been, some of the worst crimes have been committed in history have been committed by very smart people. Um, smart people can do really dumb things. 
The reason he says this is not, though, um, that we would be intellectually stunted, is that Paul knows with the rest of Scripture that an inflated view of ourselves, that we are wise, that we have the authority to determine right and wrong for ourselves, was what led to the ruin of all mankind. And what has perpetuated the, min the misery of our race is this precise attitude. The unwillingness to bend the knee to an external standard, namely God and his word, and the desire to elevate ourselves functionally to the place of God, to determine what is right, to be wise in our own eyes. This is the problem with humanity, not the solution. And the fact that we think this is the solution to humanity just confirms Paul's warning and Scripture's warning against such an attitude and its blinding consequences. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.6, speaking about leaders in the church, elders, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit, that is to have an inflated and false view of yourself and to fall into the condemnation of the devil. Notice the conceit here which is a way of saying being wise in your own eyes, is a judgment. It's not a freedom. It's not a liberation. It's not emancipation. It's condemnation. The condemnation of the devil. When we have an overinflated view of ourselves, we are putting ourselves beneath the same condemnation of Satan. That's what Paul's saying in that verse. And so one of the practical warnings that he gives to churches when they appoint elders is they can't be recent converts. Because if you appoint someone as a recent convert, they haven't actually proven their faithfulness. We say all the time in our church that you're not to appoint people to leadership. This is true of any level of leadership in anything based on potential, but based on proven faithfulness. That's the whole logic behind 1 Timothy 3 and all scripture, actually. You don't appoint men, you don't give people responsibility purely on their potential to carry it. You give people responsibility and the corresponding authority based on their proven faithfulness to carry it. This is what Paul says earlier. He says, he goes on to say, how can he manage the household of God if he can't manage his own home? The logic is he has to demonstrate that he can manage, he can care, that he can nourish, that he can cherish, that he can instruct, that he can discipline, that he can do that here in order to be entrusted here. But when you take someone who's never proven themselves and you appoint them to a position of leadership, they are more likely to have a view of themselves that there's something they're not. And, and this, is, this is a very dangerous path. And actually, churches ought to think about this a lot more seriously. Because when churches take a well-intentioned young man, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but when you take a well-intentioned young man and you appoint him to a position that he has not proven himself for, you are putting him in the precarious and the dangerous position where he is inches away from conceit. And guys like that never come back. It, it is so rare to see someone who, is, who realizes they're over their head and then backs away. What is likely to happen is that they spend the next 20, 30, 40 years carving out some niche in some church and making a train wreck of things. And a lot of that falls on the church. A lot of that falls on the church for not obeying that command, for not taking 
serious the warning and the dangers of conceit. But part of the thing, part of, but the, the benefit of time, the benefit of being under the burden of responsibility before you're given more, of being under authority before you're given more, is you know what happens? You are, uh, you are awakened to the reality of your own deficiencies. It's like, it's like, it's like a little boy playing in his sandbox, you know, and then be given the controls on an excavator. He's probably going to have a lot of fun and ruin a lot of things. Uh, but soon he's going to realize that he sucks at this and he's done a lot of damage. This is your marriage too. You think you're the man and then you get married and marriage is a window into your own corruption. It's like, wow, I consider myself a pretty loving guy. And then I got married and I realized I'm not a loving guy. And then, then you think, you know, two or three years in, you're like, you know what? I think we're killing this marriage game, you know? And, uh, you know, you're doing date nights and this, and then you have some children, and then you realize, man, I'm still such a selfish wretch of a guy. And then, you know, you get that figured out, and you have a couple more children. It just All of these things are meant to humble us, to reveal what's actually in us. In other words, the true state of who we are. It's meant to just show us the reality of who we are. It's like, this is who you are. And if you didn't have the weight of those things on you, and if you weren't put into situations where you either had to sink or swim, you wouldn't realize that. You'd have your imagination. You'd have your dreams about who you want to be and who you hope to be. And that's fine, but that's not who we are. Part of the way we guard against conceit is we willingly submit ourselves under the burden of obedience that God has called us to. And we'll be confronted with reality pretty quickly. One of the, that's a practical application, but the other practical application is one of the ways you perpetuate conceit is you willfully remove yourself and avoid those burdens of responsibility. Your life becomes this carefully curated thing. You surround yourself with the people you like. You avoid the people you don't. You choose who you're going to listen to, who you're not going to listen to, who you hang around with, who you don't hang around with, the extent to which you will serve, and no more than that. You choose what responsibilities you want to give yourself to. Well, you do that, and you will perpetuate your own vanity. And in fact, you do that because you want to perpetuate your own vanity. This is part of the reason the local church is so important. Uh, the local church is not, we don't come together because we all like each other. We don't come together because we have a lot in common with each other. Uh, you know, people talk about our church, they often talk about us in a um, monolithic way. It's like, you wouldn't say that if you came to our church. <laughs> like, yes, I tend to have a lot of friends in our church. I tend to like most of you. No, I'm joking. I like all of you. Um, but, it, but, but the point is, that's not what brings us together. Jesus brings us together. And Jesus brings us together. He brings all different people from all different places with a different likes and temperaments and personalities. And we all come together and it works, not because of our inherent unity together, but because of Jesus, because our willing submission to his word. And one of the beautiful things is that when you come underneath that, when you willfully submit yourself to the burden of a covenant relationship with other brothers and sisters, which means you don't pick and choose. You don't find the two people in church you like and start a small group. That's lame. That's high school. That's like mean girl stuff. Like, 
Don't do that in a church. What you do is you say, what time is it? And I'll show up. And if the people here are kind of weird, then that's, then that's, I need to love weirdos. And I'm probably weird. And they have to love me and put up with my weirdness. And we're sinners too. So what's going to happen when you get close to one another? I wrote a man this this week. That it's risky business. It's risky business submitting yourself to the burden of love for one another. If you actually do it. Not in, not in pithy statements, not in Hallmark cards, but you actually do it. You actually forgive one another when you are wronged by one another. You forgive one another with the forgiveness that you have received in Christ. When you run up against not only differences in personality and interests, but character flaws in other people. At that point, what do you choose to do? Do you choose to say that I'm out of here? I don't like people? You hear this all the time with people criticizing church. It's like, you know, I don't, the church is full of sinners. It's like, yes. And what do you think of yourself? We often say this in our member interviews, you know, because people sometimes come in and they're, they're excited. It's like, oh, I like this, this, and this. And it's like, that's great. You know, I love that stuff too. I, I do. I love our church. But this is a church full of sinners. And what that means is they actually sin which means they will hurt you. And here's the other thing, you are one of them. Uh, if you're looking for a perfect church, the second you show up, it's not. But if we keep that in mind, and if we actually commit ourselves to loving one another, one of the fruits of that is that we develop through the pain of trial and the, and the, and the persistence and faithfulness through it, we develop an accurate view of ourselves. We develop a brotherhood and a sisterhood and friendships with people who know us for what we actually are and love us anyways. Not for what they wish we would be or what they want us to be, but just who we are. Because they love us with the love of Christ. Not enough to, not to leave us there, but to love us so that we can move forward, be more transformed into his image. This is partly why our world struggles with community, because, it's, because you can't have community and conceit. You can't have both. If you want to have community, then your pride has to die. Your ego has to die. Your self-view of yourself has to die. As, as soon as you come into a, a community in a meaningful sense, what you thought about yourself is going to be confronted with reality. And you could either choose to live and then die, or die and then live, as Jesus said. The entire moral ethos of our age celebrates conceit. Another way we see this is we think that training our children in conceit is loving them. We see, we see this in the um, totally bankrupt view of, uh, of self that our education system has. Self-esteem, that's where I'm looking for. It's just the dumbest thing. Um, Telling them that they are perfect and can do anything, that there's nothing wrong for them, that the problem that they have in their life is that they have a low self-esteem, and that the solution is that they would have a higher view of themselves. But there's hardly a more hateful thing that you can do for a child than to produce in them an inflated view of themselves. But you know why this narrative sticks, right? You know why it's potent? And maybe you felt this when I said this. Maybe you go in your mind, what are you saying? that we should degrade children? No, the opposite of, of an inflated view of yourself is not degradation. 
It's an accurate view of yourself. Part of that includes the fact that you're created in the image and the likeness of God, which means you have inestimable worth, that you have a dignity, that you have a value, irregardless of what other, think, other people think and feel about you. It doesn't matter. God created you in his image and likeness, and you have value and worth. And if you don't feel that way, it doesn't change the fact. If other people don't like you, it doesn't change the fact. It just is true. We need to teach our children that they possessed, yes, an inestimable worth, an inestimable worth creating the image of God, that they are equal with others and that others are equal with them in this worth. And we teach them to treat others according to that worth in honor of God. And we also teach them that they, like everyone, are merely creatures. And that human freedom is found in humbly acknowledging our limits and God's limitlessness. And that there is within them, as with all creatures, a poisonous and treacherous bent to forsake their God and to develop a conceited view of themselves that does not need God. Do not be wise in your own eyes. To promote conceit in our children is like telling a sick child they are well when they have no, and that they have no need of help. It is to callously promote an illusion that keeps them enslaved. Our children have great value and worth because they're creating God's image and that we love them that they, um, but that they need to guard against the temptation to, to adopt a God complex. We don't call poison medicine and medicine poison. Second, the antidote to conceit is humility and repentance. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. I recently watched an interview, um, I won't give names, but the interviewee in America asked a Canadian if there was any hope for Canada, you know, in light of the challenges that we've seen and corruption. And she responded in the affirmative. She said, yes, I do. And the reason that she gave for it was her hope in the Canadian people. Now, I want to say that I understand this statement and I love the person who made it. I respect them enormously and I, I stand I think we all have a debt of gratitude uh, for what they've done and the way that they've loved and served their neighbors um, I understand if someone thinks that there are enough good people with enough goodwill that good things can happen that's basically what they're saying I understand that I'm not scoffing at that but I felt and I feel this increasingly as I listen to this as if I was sitting on an airplane where the pilot had died and we were plummeting to earth and I overheard the flight attendant come on the radio and say, don't worry, I do Pilates. <laughs> I was just thinking, how does that help me right now? <laughs> and I just had this overwhelming sense of if our hope for the problems that we're in is the Canadian people, we have no hope. And again, I'm not downplaying that there is a civic responsibility 
and that we all have to where and loving your neighbor means actually loving your neighbor. And you all know that I care about this. I care that our theology comes out of our fingertips and we're actually engaged in promoting what is good and rejecting what is evil. But, but I don't do it under the pretense that Canadian goodwill is the solution. Canadian goodwill or our perception as ourselves as people of goodwill is our problem. This is the point I'm trying to make. We don't need a lady who does Pilates. We need a pilot. The problem with her statement, and it was, it was well-intentioned, I know, but it was based upon a conceited view of ourselves. And unless we humble ourselves before the Lord, and unless we fear him above all others, we are doomed. We cannot say we are in this mess because we went our own way, because we're wise in our own eyes, and we do not need to turn to the Lord, and we do not need to fear his name, that we can essentially get ourselves out of this mess. That is to be wise in our own eyes. We, all of us, need to repent of our conceit. And Canadians are some of the most conceited people on the planet, if not the most And it is a poison that is corrupting us, and it will result in unimaginable human misery. I literally opened my phone this week to an ad that was sent to me from the Dying with Dignity Canada folks. And it was an ad that was put out for mature minors, saying that if you are a minor, that you should be able to kill yourself as well. This is put out, this is promoted by our state. And the reason this persists is because we still think we're good people with maybe some bad people. Maybe the people in the government are bad people. We're good people. It's to be wise in our own eyes. It is so wrong. It is the fruit of arrogance and of conceit, of thinking that we are better than everyone. You say, Canada has a great reputation. You know, you go through Europe and you wear a flag and you, you know why that is? Because those people were liberated by people who are not us. We are not them. We're the ones who say mature minors can kill themselves. That's who we are. This was Israel's problem. We can mingle in these idols in here because we're still God's chosen people. You're not God's chosen people. You can't mix the worship of the living God with other people and not reap the fruit of destruction. The antithesis to being wise in one's own eyes is twofold, the writer of Proverbs says. It is to fear the Lord and to turn from evil. In other words, the antidote to conceit is both a posture of the heart, which is humility, and a corresponding practice, which is repentance. That's what he's saying. The solution is not our hope in humanity, that there are some good ones. The story of the scripture, the entire point of the story up until Jesus' arrival on the scene is to destroy that idea. It's like, it's like we we're saying Tucker said this week, he started reading the Bible and he learned two things. And one of them was, everyone in the Bible except Jesus is bad. 
And I was like, man, this guy's not far from the kingdom because that's actually the truth. The Bible is not a story of a bunch of good guys versus a bunch of bad guys. It's a story of a bunch of bad guys and one good guy. We need to adopt a posture of humility and the corresponding practice of repentance. He says to turn from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The problem with conceit is that it is a shallow, narrow-minded distortion of reality that begins and ends with us. But humility requires us to acknowledge that everything actually begins and ends with God. If we do not adopt a posture that acknowledges God, then everything we think and do will be distorted, twisted, bent. We'll miss the mark. We are like ships without a rudder. To fear God means we must acknowledge that He is who He says He is, and we are who He says we are, not who we think He is, or who we think we are. We need to let His Word guide our view of ourselves, not our own estimation. And we need to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5.43. John 5 is, a, is, a, is just an explosive chapter, but I'm going to read one verse from it. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The litmus test for whether or not we fear the Lord is not our sense of our internal feelings, but it's whether or not we will receive the Son. That's it. That's the most basic place you can go. How do I know if I fear the Lord? Well, do you receive his Son? And do you submit to his authority? Jesus said that the rejection of his authority is a rejection of his Father. And the reason for the rejection of the Son, in part, was a rejection of external authority. To say that he comes in his father's name means with his authority. So if someone comes to you and says, I'm here on my own authority, you're essentially saying that we're on the same level. You have your ideas and opinions. I have my ideas and opinions. This is why we don't stand up here on a Sunday around a table and sit in a chair and have a conversation with you. We don't have dialogues in our church. We have proclamation in our church. And the reason is not because we just have an inflated view of ourselves that likes to be over people, but we have an elevated view of God and his word. The only way to approach God's word is with humility. Otherwise, you're not approaching it. We were talking today in fellowship group about how many Bible studies have we... My mom was telling a story. Literally, she was in a Bible study and they read a scripture and someone said, well, I don't think that God is like that. It's, it's like, it's like, who are you? Sorry, what, what basis, what insider information do you have about the living God? And God said that he's like this. But when you start uttering things like that, if you start thinking things like that, you have, you have functionally rejected the authority of God. And this was the problem with these people. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. 
What was the problem with Jesus? Because he was sinless. He never did anything wrong. He only loved everyone perfectly. One of the biggest problems with Jesus, according to others, and why they hated him, is that he didn't claim to come with human authority. Can you imagine being one of those who went and looked at him and said that this man is not like any other? He doesn't speak like the scribes, but is one who has authority. Imagine what it would be to see 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Expounding his word. Our clinging to our own authority, our right to determine what's right and determine what's true, to set ourselves as the judges against all things, to decide for ourselves, it's such a, it's not only vain, it, it's just literally suicidal. And it's not freeing. If you're, if you're here today and you, you're constantly criticizing the scriptures, it's, how are you doing with that? We weren't meant to live as God. We can't live as God. We're meant to listen to God. And, and, and I, I genuinely hope and pray for each of us that we experience the freedom of what it is to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The people who hate external authority live miserable, hateful lives. And when you learn to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, to actually stop thinking about what you think and stop being offended by things that challenge what you think, you just actually are happy and free. The evidence of humility is repentance. Conceit leads, leads to evil in part because we aren't actually living lives of repentance, but rather seeking affirmation. We don't see ourselves as the greatest threat and others as God's means of help and his word as our authoritative guide. We see ourselves as the source of help and knowledge and we even view others as a threat. Turning from evil is necessary because conceit is based on an illusory and deceitful view of ourselves that considers us more strong and moral than we are. The evidence of humility is an acknowledgement of our sin and corrupt attitudes and behaviors and a turning from them. Conceited people are not characterized by repentance. There's another litmus test. How do we know if I'm humble? Do we repent? Do we confess our sins to God? Do we do so on a daily basis? Um, Bible knowledge and lengthy prayers are not definitive proof of humility, but repentance is. Simple point of application for Hill City. We need to make sure as a community, as a church, that we do not focus on our strengths. But we need to repent of our sins. Any good thing about our church is in spite of us. 
And it's true in our lives too. There should be no boasting. We should be thankful. We should give praise to God. We should be vocal in our celebration of his gifts to us. We should love the gift of each other. We should love the gift of all the gifts that he's given us and we should give thanks for them explicitly. But we need to not boast in them. We need to not lean on them because that is the breeding ground of conceit. We have to remain humble and that humility will be evidenced by a steady and constant rooting out of sin that remains in us, in our families, and our church. True repentance begins with ourselves. We remove the log from our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's eye. That we think that the greatest threat to my life is me by far. The greatest threat to Hill City Baptist Church is Hill City Baptist Church by far. Uh, like, you know, we were censored on YouTube. You know how scared I am by that? I'm not. Uh, the, the, I, I do not worry about the state. Um, I think about it, okay, but I literally feel no fear about prison or anything like that. But I absolutely do fear the corruption that we could experience if we become conceited. I do think about that, and I do fear that. So the exhortation to us is, are we individually living lives of repentance? When we hear a sermon, <laughs> do we think of other people? Do we go home and think, man, they could have used that sermon? And it's true. That hopefully, the word of God could be helpful to people. But it's like, if we find ourselves constantly thinking that we have nothing to learn, that we're not the person Scripture is confronting, and it's all those other people, we're in a scary place. Every week, even if the sermon sucks, it's the, even if just the only good part of this is when I read the Scripture, you should be examining yourselves in light of it. And say, Lord, test me, know me, search me. And you know what? That's not a dangerous place to be. That is a very safe place to be. Lastly, the fruit of humility and righteousness is healing. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If conceit is the poison which corrupts humanity and leads to death, and it is, the writer of this says the fear of the Lord and repentance are the medicine. The word for refreshment means medicine. That repentance and humility will be as medicine. And the image of healing and medicine for flesh and bones is a picture of the total restoration of humanity. Turning from sin has consequences over everything. Not just our minds our hearts, or our spiritual lives over everything. This whole created world is under the condemnation of sin. All of creation groans, Paul says. Our flesh is corrupted. Death is a consequence of the fall. It's not normal. Our bodies decay. It's not how things are meant to be. But what he says here is when you turn to the Lord, when you humble yourselves and acknowledge your own insufficiency and need, your own participation in that corruption, what begins to happen? Healing. In the end, conceit is poison. It's self-destructive. But once we stop drinking the poison of our own vanity, we actually can begin to heal. 
Now, before Jesus returns, decay remains. There's no medicine um, that will necessarily guarantee in this life we will fully heal. But faith and repentance, through faith and repentance, we do have the promise of total restoration. Just as sin corrupts all of us, our hearts and bodies and minds, redemption brings healing to all of us. This is the glory and this is the beauty of the gospel. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is bound. Wherever there's shadows, sickness, death, misery, decay, wherever you find any of that, that's where his blessings have come to flow. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? And O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Chronicles 7.14, we read this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are sick. We confess that our land is sick, is corrupted. That there is an inevitable decay that rests upon us and we acknowledge that this is because of sin. And we gave thanks that you sent your son into the world to save sinners, to free us from the curse of sin and death and to one day make all things new. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our own conceit and our own inflated view of ourselves. And we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, to turn from evil, to experience your healing, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. It's now time for us to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is for those who have put their trust in Jesus. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and pass it around, and uh, I will come back up and pray, and we can take it together.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his body, which was broken for us. His blood, which was shed for us. For our own vanity and conceit and the ruin that we had wrought so that we might be forgiven. Humble us and heal us, restore us. Refine us, Lord, that we can faithfully proclaim him. It's in his name we pray, amen. If your faith is in Jesus, and I welcome you to eat and drink in remembrance of him.
we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that becoming justified by his grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let us give him the glory in singing the doxology together. <laughs> 